Hello, my rebels. I got a question for you. What can a 12-year-old decide on their own to do? Now, you probably know the answer. You can't buy liquor. You can't drive. You can't vote. You can't buy firearms. You can't get married. You can only fly with special arrangements and permit. A 12-year-old pretty much can't make any decisions, but a 12-year-old, according to the government, can now make a decision without parental guidance to consent to taking an experimental vaccine for a virus that kills less than one in a million young people. I'll tell you more about that, and I'll tell you what the drug companies have to say. That's ahead. It's a very disturbing story. Before we get to that, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's the video version of this podcast. We have a lot of visual elements in these shows, video clips, charts, things like that. If I read from a primary document, I show you that document as proof of it. For example, today, I read from Pfizer's own website. And I want you to see that with your eyes so you know what I'm reading to you is not some right-wing commentary. It's what Pfizer themselves says. So please consider subscribing to Rebel News Plus. Just go to rebelnews.com, click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month, or you could sign up for 80 bucks a year. You can see it's a bit of a discount. You get other shows in addition to mine. Sheila Gunn, Reed, David Menzies, David, Andrew Chapados. And look, that dough goes to Rebel News, which means it doesn't, uh, you know, keeps us independent. We don't take a dime from Trudeau. So please consider it. All right. Here's today's podcast. Tonight, why is the government pushing vaccine on children without their parental consent? It's May 21st, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail why? when you're a biggest carbon oh, consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say is the government about why I publish is because it's my bloody right to do so. I saw this announcement from the Peel Regional Government. That's a large municipality right next to Toronto. Please note, info around the consent for vaccination has been updated. Youth aged 12 plus can consent to immunization on their own behalf, provided they understand the benefits and risks of vaccination. As with any other medical appointment, we encourage family discussion. So 12-year-olds can now consent to the vaccination without their parents. 12-year-olds? You know, some 12-year-olds are still playing with dolls. 12-year-olds can't make any decisions in life. They can't drink. They can't drive. They can't buy cigarettes. They can't vote. They can't get married. They can't buy guns. They can't fly on an airplane by themselves without special arrangements. They're children. The law says that most contracts with children that young are non-binding. They're invalid. You've heard the old phrase, taking candy from a baby, right? The point is that you can trick kids or manipulate them. They're not mature enough, skeptical enough, wise enough, experienced enough to make grown-up decisions. It's also an important reason why we don't let adults take advantage of children in other ways, too. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but it's one of YouTube's strictest censorship rules. Uh, it's about showing minor children on TV. All sorts of special rules to do that. 
And I agree with those rules, by the way. Anything else is a form of child abuse, you know. But apparently 12-year-olds can consent to whether or not they want to be jabbed in the arm and injected with an experimental drug that has not yet been approved by the FDA to meet an illness, COVID-19, that has less than a one in a million chance of killing a child. That's not an exaggeration. It really is less than one in a million. COVID is an old person's disease, really, for people who are already very sick and who are 80 years and up. Why are you jabbing children and doing so without consulting their families? Why are you hiding it from their families like a secret? Is it for the same reason why we protect children from making other life-altering decisions on their own? Because someone else will try to pressure them into doing something against their own interests and their parents would look out for them? Is that why parental consent is not needed here? Here, let me read to you again. And I encourage you to go to this website or any of the vaccine websites for yourself. This is the official homepage of one of the vaccines called Pfizer. This is not some news commentary site. This is them. The Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine has not been approved or licensed by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, but has been authorized for emergency use by FDA under an emergency use authorization to prevent COVID-19 for use in individuals 12 years of age and older. The emergency use of this product is only authorized for the duration of the declaration that circumstances exist justifying the authorization of emergency use of the medical product. Unless the declaration is terminated or authorization revoked sooner. So it's only because we're in an emergency state that this experiment is being allowed. Do you think 12-year-olds are being told that? Do you see that first sentence there? It's not approved. It's authorized. The difference is authorized means they'll let you do it. Approved means... They don't know if it's safe yet. Do you think 12-year-olds know the difference between approved and authorized? Do you think 40-year-olds know the difference? You know who does know the difference? Anthony Fauci's staff, the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, the FDA staff. You'd think they'd all get vaccinated, right? I mean, it's their job to get us vaccinated. Surely they would, right? (laughs) Take a look at this. What percentage of the employees in your institute your center of your employees has been vaccinated? You know, I'm not 100% sure, Senator, but I think it's probably a little bit more than half, probably around 60%. If I told you that half the waiters and cooks at any restaurant absolutely refuse to eat at that restaurant, you'd probably raise an eyebrow. Why won't you eat at this restaurant where you're a waiter? You won't eat here? That's weird. But what if half of the people at the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, and the FDA, the vaccine pushers, what if Half of them refused to take the jab. What would that mean? Do you think 12-year-olds would be impressed with that statistic? I am. And yet vaccinations have now become the purpose of the pandemic, not dealing with the virus itself. It's burnt out. In Texas, nearly 30 million people live there. It's over. They, They had no deaths the other day. In a population of 30 million, infections are at the lowest in a year. They're done. Florida's similar. Flu season's over. There's herd immunity. It's the summer, whatever, I don't know, but it's over. And politically, it's over. I showed you the charts, province by province, the other day. Deaths are plummeting in Canada, too. They did after Christmas. Nothing to do with the vaccines. The vaccines weren't available widely then. Flu season 
is over. The death rates have plummeted down 70, 80, 90 percent, depending on the province. But look at this. Here's the government of Ontario, where deaths have plummeted. Really, it's over. But the enforcement is more brutal than ever, as you may know. But look at this road map out. It's based on how many people get vaccinations and on time. No matter what, they're not lifting lockdown laws until 21 days pass and then another 21 days pass. Why? Where'd that number come from? Just out of the air? Who, who made that number up? First, we heard two weeks to spread the curve, to stop the curve, whatever. Now, now, now it's three weeks. You just, you just sort of did that. By the way, what does time have to do with any of that? But at the top of that infographic, you'll see vaccination rates. If the pandemic is over, if the emergency is over, why are you still pushing experimental medicine that hasn't been approved yet and was only allowed because we were in an emergency? If the emergency is over, why are you still doing that? And why are you making use of that experimental medicine, the criteria for whether or not businesses are locked down, schools are locked down, people are locked down? What, what happened to two weeks to flatten the curve? That, the curve they were talking about was to make sure hospitals weren't overwhelmed with everyone getting sick at once. So hospitals are not being overwhelmed. They, they actually never were. So why is the number of people taking the jab now the question in mind? Is that the purpose of it? Again, that's what the purpose of the pharmaceutical companies themselves are. Moderna, one of the vaccine makers, this is their first drug they've ever been able to take to market. They've never sold a drug before. This is their jackpot. They love this. Okay, I understand their interest, but I'm not a Moderna shareholder, and neither, I hope, is Doug Ford or the other premiers who have the same approach. So why are they pushing experimental vaccines for a pandemic that's over and making use of the vaccine the criterion for whether or not we're out of the state of emergency? And why are they pushing it on children? That 12-year-old rule isn't just for Peel Region. Actually, I see it all over Canada. I see it popping up uh, in even Alberta, for example. I see that Jason Kenney, the premier there, is also linking ending the lockdown with the number of people who get vaccinated. I thought this was about not getting sick. I didn't, I didn't think it was about buying and injecting an experimental drug. Why would we do that if no one's getting sick, if no one's dying, or at least the numbers are infinitesimally small now? The emergency is over in real life. But the legal status of emergency is still in effect, so they can still authorize and sell the experimental drugs that half of Fauci's own staff won't take. I can maybe guess why. Well, what Premiers Ford and Kenny and the rest of them are doing is pressuring people to get the jab in order to be free, including pressuring children. But it's not mandatory, they say, yet. But look at this propaganda piece from Bloomberg, one of the biggest news sources in the world. What happens when vaccine incentives aren't enough? Reluctant citizens can slow down herd immunity. Despite abundant vaccines, compulsory shots are unpalatable, but may be necessary. <laughs> just stop and think about that. A virus so deadly that people just don't even want it. Here's a clip uh, from that story, a little segment. It's about Hong Kong, one of the wealthier and smarter cities in the world a city that's actually part of China now, so they're a little closer to Wuhan. I think people in Hong Kong know a thing or two about 
viruses. I mean, they were ravaged by SARS. They know a little bit about China, and they know a, lot of, a little bit about trust and politicians. Here's what the story says about Hong Kong. Despite a free and easily accessible program open to all adults since April, only just over 10% of the population of 7.5 million has had both injections, with low rates even among the oldest. Hesitancy is so high that only half of residents say they intend to get vaccinated. Yeah. Why is that? I wonder. <laughs> Here's a headline from Pennsylvania. That state went for Trump in 2016, went for Biden in 2020. Democrat governor, big liberal cities like Philadelphia. But look at this. A referendum in a Democrat state. And that referendum reined in the governor's powers to call an emergency and to use an emergency to do things. It limits the government's power in emergencies. Limits the duration of that power, too. That's voters' way of saying, you know what? You misbehaved. You're not the boss of us. It, it's, it's saying what you've done this last year and a half, we don't buy it. And saying that it's an emergency for 14 months straight doesn't make it a true emergency. It means that they don't believe the establishment anymore. This is a Democrat state. Isn't that interesting? The people where they could, in a referendum, are speaking out, taking back and talking back. Wish we could do some of that up here. Maybe they're sick of being shut down, locked down. Maybe they're sick of being ruled by people they never voted for, they never met before, who clearly have other agendas. Maybe they just want their lives back, their democracy back. Maybe they'd prefer to live like Texans and Floridians, but they just don't want to move there. But look at Oregon, another very Democrat state. According to this, businesses that uh, allow mask-free customers in now have to demand to see those customers' private vaccine papers. So the most invasive law in the country uh, being delegated to shopkeepers to demand private health information from private citizens. I'm sorry, that's not liberal. That's fascist. Here's the state's new rules. I, I read that. I went online. I couldn't believe them. I wanted to see them for myself. I just got to read this insane part, too. You can find this quickly on the Internet. It's from Oregon. Applicability and enforcement of mask, face covering, face shield, and physical distancing requirements. Imagine they're still writing this in 2021. All businesses, employers, and faith institutions are required to continue to apply and enforce the mask, face covering, and face shield guidance and physical distancing requirements in state COVID-19 guidance to all individuals unless a business, employer, or faith institution has a policy for checking for proof of vaccination status of individuals and request proof of vaccination status from each individual and reviews each individual's proof of vaccination prior to entry or admission. <laughs> Got it. Could you imagine any business or church demanding to know the private, personal health information of someone walking into church. That's not science. That's not medicine. That is authoritarianism. That is police state rule. Oh, uh, one more little vote to tell you about. I told you the one in Pennsylvania. Here's a vote from Oregon. Five counties in the state of Oregon, rural counties, Republican-leaning, freedom-leaning counties, they voted to leave Oregon. They want to join Idaho. Now, I don't know 
the constitutionality of that. I, I seem to recall the United States having a bit of a civil war about secession. But these Oregonians, they don't want to leave America. They just want to redraw the border to put them with Idaho, away from the Carese people in the big city of Portland. And uh, they just want to join the normal people in Idaho. Um, yeah. If they manage to do that, maybe we can have a vote up here in Canada too. I, I'd like to join some sane place because we're not it right now. Stay with us for more. Not even appointed an ambassador to Israel. It's clear that Israel is not a priority for him. He didn't speak to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for the first four weeks he was in office, whereas even Obama, I think, did so in the first week and Donald Trump did so on his first full day in office. So it's clear that Biden had taken a step back from Israel and he had also promised the Palestinians hundreds of millions of dollars in resumed aid funding that Trump had withheld. Trump withheld it because the Palestinian Authority has been openly supporting terrorism. But Biden restored some of that funding against American law, I believe, which prevents any taxpayer dollars from going to the Palestinian Authority while they are still supporting terrorists. But Biden restored that without any preconditions, any concessions from the Palestinians, any guarantees. He just said, I'm going to give you this funding. I think that sent a signal that Palestinians could use violence and incitement with total impunity. And I think it invited Hamas and other terrorist groups to try their luck. That was the first mistake. The second mistake was Biden's attempts to court the Iranian regime and entice them back to the table on a resumption of the nuclear deal. The nuclear deal is part of the reason Hamas has all these rockets. Iran received billions and billions of dollars from the United States, from assets it had held in the United States, sometimes pure cash on cargo planes in the middle of the night, and they used it to fund their terrorist operations throughout the region. Hamas is one of the recipients of, Iran, uh, of Iran's largesse, and one of the reasons Hamas has an arsenal is because of that support. Going back to the nuclear deal would simply allow Hamas to rearm. It also signaled that Biden was not going to be supportive of Israel. And uh, there are a number of other things. This is really the third thing Biden did wrong uh, that, are, that are related to that Iranian problem. And that's this. Biden downgraded relations with many Arab allies in the Middle East that had made peace with Israel. He pulled out funding from Saudi Arabia, for example, in their war against Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. He canceled a deal with the UAE to lower aluminum tariffs as a reward for doing a peace deal with Israel. So Biden made it clear in many ways he was not going to be as supportive of the emerging Arab-Israeli alliance in the Middle East. And so all of that was a provocation for Iran and its terrorist proxy, Hamas, to attempt to start something and see how far they could push it. They really wanted to gain a strategic upper hand. They wanted Israelis to have to live in the shadow of rocket fire. And had it not been for the Iron Dome, had it not been for Netanyahu and the Israeli people's willingness to fight, that might have happened. At the war's close, at the ceasefire, 72% of Israelis said they wanted the war to keep going because they wanted to get rid of Hamas. Not because they have animus toward the Palestinians. Hamas is terrible for Palestinian civilians. But Israelis are tired of this. They want Hamas to be gone. Israel had to weigh the cost to its international relations as well as the threat that perhaps Iranian-backed Hezbollah in Lebanon would start firing rockets if they did get close to getting rid of Hamas. So Israel had to weigh several different factors and ultimately decided against a ground invasion. That may come in the future. For now, though, 
those three mistakes that Biden made, the Iran deal, the snubbing of Arab allies and the pressure on Israel and rewarding of Palestinians, those are reversible. He can reverse those. But they are the reason this conflict happened in the first place. He has to learn from that. He has to go forward on a new path. But if those things hadn't happened, I don't think we'd be looking at a war at all. We had four years of quiet under Donald Trump because he was absolutely clear about his support for Israel. And it was clear to anybody that if they started something with Israel, Trump was going to give Israel a free hand to defend itself. That was not clear with Biden. And that's why we ended up in a conflict. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, Israel is the first uh, battle that, you know, Trump had cooled off. I think others might be looming, whether it's Taiwan um, or other Iranian uh, ambitions, frankly, even even Russia. I mean, things were it's like Donald Trump put all these global conflicts in the freezer and they just sort of stopped. And I think everyone now sees is going to test how far they can go under Biden. Let me note something from your story that I that I think is very important. Uh, not one Arab nation that recently made peace with Israel withdrew its support. Now, sure, they they gave rhetorical support for Palestinian people, and, and you can understand that. Just you can understand the rhetorical support. But um, the deal between the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and Sudan and Morocco, they they maintained um, those countries. Obviously, have decided that. A strong working relationship with Israel is more important than a momentary PR burst uh, of siding with Hamas. Um, I find that incredibly encouraging. Yes, that's a real victory for Israel here, that it didn't see any downgrading of relations among the Arab nations that had signed peace and normalization agreements with it. There wasn't even a word of criticism from those nations. There were a few protests in Bahrain. I think a few dozen people showed up on the streets to protest, but that was it. So less in than fact, in Toronto. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, sure. the, the, the Western anti-Israel movement is much more vociferous than in Arab countries that understand fully what's at stake here. They understand that Iran is backing Hamas and that Iran is a threat to them as well as to Israel. And that's why these Arab states stayed on Israel's side. More than that, the United Arab Emirates actually leaked that they had told Hamas that future infrastructure projects in Gaza were in jeopardy unless Hamas could stop inciting and starting these confrontations. So not only were they not backing away from Israel, but the Arab states that signed the Abraham Accords actually tacitly sided with Israel. So that's another victory that came out of this. The new relationships Israel has forged with the Arab states of the region withstood this test of fire. And Israel had to be careful. They didn't want to put those states into a very difficult position by making the war much bigger or more damaging than it was. And that's another victory. Israel avoided any massive civilian casualty events, any embarrassing mistakes, anything that would have drawn international condemnation. The only possible exception was the bombing of the Jala Tower, where a number of international news organizations had their offices and there were no one there was no one hurt there. Uh, plus, they were sharing those offices apparently with Hamas. So no one had any real sympathy for the Associated Press or Al Jazeera or any of these other groups. So that, that was the only controversial attack. But Israel felt no qualms about that and said, look, you know, Hamas cannot use journalists as human shields and journalists can't cover up for Hamas. Yeah. So hmm. those Arab alliances 
held. And that's a very, very important and optimistic sign going forward. Yeah. I got one last question for you. I, I read a report, now it might just be gossip or a rumor, that the success of the Iron Dome anti-missile, anti-rocket system, which was so spectacular to see, um, I read that some of these new Arab allies of Israel, uh, that there's talk that they might be provided with these weapon systems by Israel because they're of a defensive nature only. So it's not like Israel is at risk of these being shot at Israel. They're a purely, it's like a bulletproof vest. They're not an offensive weapon. It's just a defensive weapon. Is there any truth to that, those reports that Israel might actually be helping to provide defense to its new Arab friends? Yes, and that's a big positive for those Arab countries. It is likely that Israel will sell the Iron Dome to Dubai, to other places that want to protect civilian population centers from rocket attacks. And that's a very real risk. Think about the fact that the Houthi rebels have fired rockets at Saudi Arabia and that they've damaged oil fields in Saudi Arabia. That caused a major problem for world energy markets. And of course, it's a problem for Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi Arabia hasn't signed a peace deal. They might eventually. But one of the things that sweetens those deals is the opportunity to gain access to Israeli defense technology. The Iron Dome is a great weapon to sell because it's purely defensive. And in the off chance that Israel did get into a war with these Arab countries, the Iron Dome is not going to stop the Israeli Air Force. But it will stop these rocket attacks from Iranian-backed militias that don't have fighter jets, but do have drones, short-range rockets, longer-range missiles. Israel has a variety of missile defenses that can shield these Arab countries. And so now having demonstrated the efficacy of Iron Dome that can take apart a rocket barrage of dozens of rockets at a time, maybe not more than that, we'll see. But they've showed that it can work against at least multiple rockets at the same time. That's a great thing for Israel's defense industry, and it's a great thing for cementing ties between Israel and its Arab neighbors against Iran. You know, I, I can't even believe it. I mean, who would have thought that we would be talking about Israel selling weapons to Arab countries to defend themselves against Islamic terror and all of this uh, with this with the pouting of a U.S. president, how things have been rearranged. And I think Donald Trump has not received enough credit for how he helped peace in the region. Um, if it were a Democrat who had done those, he'd have four Nobel Peace Prizes by now. Joel, we got to let you go, but thank you for this wisdom. I just want to give a shout out to your new ebook that's available on Amazon, and it's got a clever title. It's The Zionist Conspiracy and How to Join It. And it's a provocative title, but it's about the lessons from Jews and from Israel that anyone around the world can, can learn about building a successful society. I think that's something that, that frankly, even... Uh, Arab and Muslim uh, jurisdictions can learn from Gaza itself. Give us 30 seconds of a refresher on your book, The Zionist Conspiracy. Well, the great success of Zionism is that to achieve their goal, which was self-determination in the land of Israel, they were willing to change the Jewish people themselves or ourselves. They prepared their constituents for statehood, developing a language, developing self-governing institutions, developing new traditions of the military and so forth, and they prepared for independence and for success. And the message of the book is that's something anyone can learn from. That's something other national movements can learn from. That's something civil rights movements can learn from. And that's something individuals can learn from. That sometimes to achieve a goal, you have to be willing to transform yourself as well. And Israel is an example, perhaps the best example, of 
success in doing that. So, Paul, great to see you as always. Folks, if you want that book, we'll have the Amazon link under this video. Joel, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for your time. Thank you. All right, there you have it. Stay with me. Hey, welcome back on my show last night. Paul writes, people want to be saved, even if it's from themselves. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I want to tell you a personal story. You know, I, um, I take my dog for a walk. I know I don't talk about that too much, but I live in a liberal city on a pretty liberal street. I don't talk politics by, to my neighbors. Some of them know who I am and what I do, but I just don't want to bring it up because I, I, don't, I don't need the fights, right? I'm in a liberal city. What do I do? I'm behind enemy lines politically. And um, I've met people on the street, and they're talking about masks, and they're wearing masks, and and I don't I don't get into it. I'm not I'm not looking to pick a fight. Across my street, and I'm not going to describe the family, but let me just call them Torontonian. I see a no more lockdown sign from Randy Hillier on my liberal street in my liberal neighborhood from a family that's pretty liberal and very apolitical. I think people are getting a little bit sick of being saved by the Teresa Tams and the Doug Fords and the Jason Kennys in this world. I couldn't, I, in fact, I just saw, oh, this is one of those signs for, you know, college pro painters, or, you know, can, tradesmen sometimes put their sign up while they're temporarily working. I didn't even look at it because I assumed that's what it was. That was an end the lockdown sign on my street. People are getting tired of this. Corey writes, Lincoln is doing very well. Lad's got a bright future. I like Lincoln. He's done great. I, I sort of think he just wants to stay over there for good because, I mean, listen, if you had the choice between living in London, one of the great cities of all time, that's getting great again now that's out of its lockdown. You know, it's a little bit exotic, but still familiar enough. A young guy in a wonderful city, pubs are open, gyms are open. And he gets to talk about interesting things or coming back to dreary, scoldy Toronto. Which would you rather do if you were a young lad? Well, alas, his uh, working trip must come to an end. So he's coming back to Canada. He's going to have to quarantine for a bit too. But I'm sure he had the trip of a lifetime and we'll be sure to interview him when he's out of quarantine and back here. Anyways, listen, thank you for uh, your kind words uh, for Lincoln. We have so many young reporters and uh, behind-the-scenes staff to Rebel News. I think we've got 30 or 31 people now, which is twice as many as work for McLean's Magazine. We have to stop thinking about ourselves as tiny because I don't think we're tiny anymore. And especially on the stories these days that matter, the lockdown, the pandemic, the vaccination, pseudoscience, I think we're probably the most important voice in Canada, certainly covering lockdowns. I don't know, that's my opinion. What's yours? That's it for today. Until Monday, when we have a special show. On behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. And keep fighting for freedom.